3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning, James. How's your week been? You're not too bad. Cats got over the line in a very close game on the weekend. Yeah, I don't think you deserve to win that, really. I thought no. Melbourne deserved to win. Um, true. What do you think... Do you think it was a um, the fisticuffs were over, I don't know, property around Mount Buller or uh, negative gearing? Um, I don't know. Well, that that area of the ground at Cunia Park is a bit of a throwback to um, previous ways to watch the football in in the sense that it is an outer sort of area, you know, and you can stand up there. Um, Always. Gets the blood flowing, being well, on your feet. Well, I, I um, haven't been down to a game in Geelong this year, but typically I've found over the years watching football there, it is a throwback in many ways. You can, It is um, a lot of people that are really drunk, um, a lot of racist comments and, um, you know, a lot of, like, the negative aspects of that kind of stuff, I guess. So it is it's unfortunate, yeah. It is interesting, though, you know, the comments from stadium management straight away is, you know, oh, we've already done a lot where, you know, we only serve mid-strength beer, which is something that came in in my lifetime. But we've been talking for quite a few weeks now. I don't think we're going to stop on 3CR Monday breakfast about men's violence and the, some of the cultural underpinnings. And I think to be so a bit like... With those ads we were talking about last week in relationship to the World Cup, I mean, this constant rhetoric around it's, oh, it's really just, uh, you know, the regular hoi polloi, the regular people not being able to handle their alcohol or handle the excitement of a sports game. I don't think that does a lot to um, mitigate violence. You know, something as simple as we'll just give them half-strength beer. All that means is that people spend twice as much getting just as pissed, I would argue. Yeah, I think it's perhaps something, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, you do get quite animated and um, let out a lot of frustrations, I guess, at sporting um, games. And I don't know, I think perhaps there's some aspects of that alcohol or not that, you know, we need to think about when we're watching those games as well. Yeah, and I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that alcohol isn't a factor in violence. It definitely is a factor in violence, but it's not the only factor and there are other underlying causes. I don't think we can just bundle it all up in as there was too much alcohol, therefore that's why people got violent. That said, I'm sure you um, have been horrified by the ads that have been running in the last few months around the fact that 95% of our emergency services have experienced uh, physical or verbal violence when going to assist members of, a, of the public and that's our paramedics or our um, nurses and doctors in ER in the in emergency um, rooms around the state. I mean, were you shocked by how high those those numbers have been reported? Uh, yeah, it wasn't something that I probably w- wasn't aware of or probably spent a lot of time kind of thinking about, I guess. But 
um, not shocked, but disappointed also that the result is to um, try to bring in minimum um, mandatory sentencing, which I think is, um, mm. you know, going to make the jobs harder for um, those emergency service workers as well as they try to work with people that are, you know, um, perhaps, you know, influenced by drugs or other things and, and are not necessarily able to control their actions in that sense. It's very interesting, actually. Um, I work in a school, and the other day we had a visitor from... Um, it's actually the, the father of a teacher at the school. I, I can't name any names because he's, um, you know, he's there on behalf of Ambulance Victoria, but we were chatting about those statistics, and, and he said that you know, recently the Herald Sun came out to their, um, their um, station, their ambulance station, and spoke to them about the violence that uh, they were on the receiving end of, and all the members of his uh, station, all his fellow paramedics, um, wanted to wanted to make clear that the majority of the violence that they experience comes from drunk Anglo-Saxon males, you know, as, as a counterpoint to my initial commentary from about mid-strength beer. But he said they weren't really, you know, the journalist in question wasn't interested in hearing um, that statistic, that the, the majority of assaults come from drunk Anglo-Saxon males. Um, they were much more interested in the more sensationalist narrative of our drug-affected um, you know, particularly ice, you know, they want to focus on, which he said is a problem, but it just pales in comparison to alcohol. So, mm. yeah, I think it is um, interesting the way some of these things get reported and, um, yeah. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Uh, I think that is a great uh, remix of Treaty. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Mm. Um, Good way to kick off our Monday morning. Mm. Yeah, I like that. That was was good. Some mean flow by Baker Boy. Yeah, I um, since listening to that track, I've um, been checking out a few of his other new tracks, and um, yeah, I recommend people checking out Baker Boy. Mm. Um, but right now, let's go straight into alternative news. Well, Jackson, you had something you wanted to share with us. Well, last week, for our listeners who were tuned in Wednesday morning, they would have heard uh, Will and Edwin talking to Will from Disarm Unis, which is kind of a, a collaboration of... Um, or a coalition of various concerned students at universities about the ongoing um, infiltration of our university uh, campuses by the arms industry, Um, universities um, making deals with major arms manufacturers at Melbourne Uni. Uh, The arms manufacturers, they've already got some um, deals with BAE Systems, but now they've also got a big new... uh, facility called the Stellar Lab opening uh, in collaboration with Lockheed Martin and there's been a group of Melbourne University students and activists kind of uh, being guided by some other members of Wacker as well but they're called uh, Lockout Lockheed, Melbourne Uni Lockout Lockheed and they've been uh, campaigning around this issue to really try and get some nuts and bolts about what's happening in the Stellar Lab, what's going to be researched, what kind of work the students uh, that that end up in that lab are going to be doing. There's going to be graduate uh, positions there. There's going to be kind of pathways into industry. And, you know, over, or maybe 
eight or nine months ago, I went and recorded an event where they spoke to some members from the US military who were talking about the ways in which the tertiary sector starts to move graduates into uh, particularly drone warfare, which is uh, something that sounds like is going to be researched at this facility, uh, the Stella Lab at, at Melbourne Uni. The, so the uni students really just want details about what, what kind of work people are going to be doing, what are the outcomes going to be, what kind of technology is going to be developed, and why the university is making partnerships with arms manufacturers rather than other um, cutting-edge technologies, you know, for example, green energy, um, you know, the jobs of the future, automation, robotics, uh, you know, it kind of feeds into this this whole narrative in Australia where we can't subsidise an automobile industry or, or even, heaven forbid, an electric car industry, but we can subsidise tanks at Fisherman's Bend and we can, uh, you know, commit $200 billion over 10 years to growing our ability to make arms to sell overseas. So it's all kind of part of a broader conversation. But finally, after a great action last week when uh, university students from uh, Lockout Lockheed and Disarm Unis um, shut down administration buildings at the Parkville campus um, and they were also drawing uh, attention to the links between environmental degradation and the military industry as well. So there were uh, environmental activists there as well. They got a sit-down with the, the Chancellery. I always have difficulty saying that word. Um, and there's they put up some notes online from that meeting as well as a paper uh, that the University of Melbourne gave to them called University of Melbourne engagement with Australia's defence industry. And from my <clears throat> reading of it, it really looks like a lot of avoidance from the university to really uh, expand on what kind of research is going to be done. You know, they mention uh, things like information systems, data analytics and reasoning will be the primary research programs that Lockheed Martin will be undertaking at the Stellar Lab. Uh, information systems and data analytics you know, could mean the systems that, you know, control drone surveillance or drone attacks, you know, data analysis is something we've spoken a lot about on this program, James, so uh, that can be concerning as well. I think the whole thing is concerning. Um, so these these um, actions were part of the SOS conference and, you know, students of sustainability and um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's been quite, a, it's been a couple of years now that um, anti-military activists uh, being MAPW, IPAN, some of these organisations have been trying to get um, Freedom of Information Act, um, passed so that they can uh, find out exactly what all the companies involved and what kind of things that they're planning on doing at the Melbourne Uni site. Um, but it, it's not just Melbourne Uni. There's a lot of universities across Australia, um, particularly in Brisbane and in, in Adelaide as well, that um, have these partnerships with uh, military companies and you know it's actually uh, universities have pretty much always had partnerships with uh, military companies with um, agencies such as you know ASIO and um, the FBI and things like that they, they've they've worked hand in hand with those kind of um, companies for you know pretty much as long as universities have been around but something as well that we've seen um, which Jacob talked about on his show a couple of weeks ago on a Friday rave was about the partnerships happening uh, in high schools now as well, um, particularly in South Australia. So uh, younger and younger, they're trying to convert people into the military. And I think that our government is trying to make, uh, you know, the military one of the main 
kind of industries in Australia, mm. which I think is concerning. I will just say that in this document released by the university that Lockout Lockheed have obtained, <laughs> they do specify, they say the research conducted at Stellar Lab will include information and analytics, complex optimization, machine learning, space systems, hypersonics, also known as computational fluid dynamics, advanced materials for cooling, and quantum computing and sensing. But they guarantee that there will be no research in the facility on atomic, nuclear, radiological, chemical, or biological weapons, or on any guns, missiles, mines, or any other form of explosive device. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that and see whether that, in fact, is true. Most likely we won't know until uh, a long time afterwards. Um, uh, but I think there's yeah something else I wanted to touch on in alternative news was uh, in an event that happened on Friday night, which I'm sure that a lot of uh, 3CR listeners um, knew about or, or went along to. Um, that was the um, the tour of um, Lauren Southern and Stefan Molinex. Um and the the protests that happened um, outside of the um, of the meeting, I think there's a lot of things I think that are quite interesting about about this. Um, so so the venue was uh, in Broadmeadows, and it's actually the same venue. It's a function centre, you know, has weddings and that that type of thing, where Gert Wilder spoke. Um, I guess it must have been about four or five years ago now. Um, who's also a far-right European politician. Um, so I think that's interesting that it's the same venue. Um, and I, I guess, you know, the kind of way that they have to, you know, the trickery that they kind of need to go to to um, get people to their events, they, you know, had buses leaving from Broadmeadow Station. Um, yeah, I, I find that kind of interesting that they have to be in this kind of secrecy because they're concerned about the protests and that kind of thing. Um, I wonder what that does for the kind of psyche of the people that are attending the event. You know, perhaps that kind of hardens their view that, you know, the world is kind of out to get them and um, kind of chip on their shoulder kind mm. of thing. Um, but I think the tickets are around $700. Wow. Which I find staggering as well. So who who was able to afford that, I think, is, is interesting. Um, and... The speakers were charged $68,000 for um, the police, as Andrew Bolt says um, in today's Herald Sun, were charged, quote, $68,000 for police to save them from leftists trying to shut down their Melbourne event. Um, But there's a difference between uh, protest and shutting down something, isn't there? Like if you're standing out the front saying, you know, what what you're spreading is hateful, what you're doing is, um, you know, creating schisms in society. Like, Bolt's mis- he's misrepresenting what occurred, isn't he? Um, well, I think it would be... I'm sure that lots of people there um, would have been hoping to shut down the event. Um, I don't think that's necessarily mischaracterising what people wanted to do. I mean, I think that's the posters and things sort of said they could do that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they didn't do that. But they did... They were able to block the Hume Highway for a couple of hours um, and block the... Uh, buses from getting in at mm. the point, but um, yeah, they said that people were throwing things at the buses and were able to stop things, buses for a period of time and stuff like that, so um, yeah, I think that, you know, I guess it shows that there was um, uh, 
people that oppose the kind of views that those people um, are trying to bring out here. Having to pay for the police presence, I think, is a really interesting thing. We know that Milo Yiannopoulos um, was fined or had to pay $50,000 for a similar event last year, which he apparently hasn't paid yet. Um, But I don't know. It seems... I don't... uh, As much as, you know, I definitely support the protest and don't support anything that these people have to say. Isn't that the police's job? I mean, why are they fining people for protesting or, you know, fining people for holding an event? That that seems strange to me. But, um, yeah, that's... Oh, in some ways, isn't isn't that fine a, a discouragement for those people from speaking? Aren't the Vic police, um, therefore... In, in the same way that a speeding fine is supposed to discourage you from speeding in your car, perhaps the Victoria Police are just discouraging Molinex and Southern from speaking. But it hasn't stopped them. They, I mean, and where, what is the, um, what, you know, under what grounds are they not allowed to speak or are they being fined or, you know, I guess some of that stuff I just think is a bit murky. It's not. Mm. And, you know, at what point do they say, well, you're holding a protest and we want, we're going to find you for the presence that you have there and stuff as well. Mm. Yeah, I know. I think it's a murky ground, but um, uh, I think that there's actually, there's some more um, of, of these people um, scheduled to come out later. And um, actually in this article, um, Andrew Bolt goes on to say that um, he talks about other protests and left that should be fined for having um, stopped the ground, uh, stopping um, traffic and things like that as well. So there you go. I mean, I think Andrew Bolt's already trying to agitate for um, left protests to be given the same treatment. Mm. Um, but no, I think it, it's great that there's um, there's resistance to the ideas that these people are trying to bring out here. And, you know, we've seen uh, that there is, you know, a groundswell of kind of support for a lot of these far-right ideas in Australia. I was looking through, um, was watching the, it's on Netflix, the um, Hawk telemovie um, thing, and it was talking about uh, former Labor leader Bill Hayden. And so I was looking through, um, just looking through the elections of, of some of that period, and I noticed that there was a party called, I'm pretty sure it was called Reclaim or Reclaim something similar to that. And this was in 1995, um, which was an anti-immigration party, and it just made me think that um, even the even the far right isn't just um, bringing back ideas that have already happened in the past. They're just um, you know the same name of a party that has got the same ideas, and but you know everyone thinks that they're doing something new, I guess. But uh, yeah, well, I think is that all we've got for alternative news or anything else, Jackson? Oh no, just briefly, I'd uh, um, encourage people to check out our. Uh, Potatriots on uh, Facebook, which is a great um, site that keeps track of um, some of those morons from the UPF and uh, Reclaim Australia, particularly Neil Erickson. Uh, some fantastic videos made by a Melbourne comedian. I'm not sure of the, the name behind the page, but it's it's very funny watching. I'm sure there'll be something about Friday's protest up quite soon on that. Um, well, site. we might just... Um have a couple of quick announcements and then soon we'll be back with um, our first interview and guest for today, Christian Slattery, who's a senior Stop uh, Adani campaigner 
and we're going to be talking about uh, Stop Adani and some of the uh, new developments that are happening with that campaign. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR. Well, that was a little um, station announcement from Tom Waits there. Thank you, Tom. Um, and we are you are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and we're going to have a chat now with Christian Slattery about the Stop Adani campaign. Um, so thanks a lot for joining us in the studio, Christian. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here. Um, well, I guess, you know, firstly, I, I think what I'm really interested in... Um, you know, the Adani campaign, it's really something that has, you know, garnered so much uh, support across Australia, I think, from, you know, I guess one of the main things I, I see is that a lot of organisations have come in behind um, the campaign, and that, that has meant that there's been a space for, you know, existing activists to to find a way to be involved in it, um, but also lots of people that I chat to who have uh, never been activists or been active in anything before and saw this as something they can get involved in. How do you think, you know, that all came about? Yeah, I mean, I think this is quite a unique campaign in Australian environmental history. Um, certainly it's the biggest environmental campaign in Australia since the Franklin River Dam protests. And as you um, mentioned, the Stop Adani Alliance is comprised of almost 40 uh, environmental and civil society organisations across Australia. Um, their membership cumulatively is somewhere close to 2 million Australians. And I think it's really an issue that crystallises so many of the concerns that Australians have about uh, climate change and climate damage, um, but also the way that, uh, you know, some of these really big companies are coming into um, our country and, and, you know, pillaging land rights and the environment and trashing the Great Barrier Reef. So I think there's you know, this comes at a, a time of real concern in the Australian community. I think that's one of the reasons why so many hundreds of thousands of people um, have turned out to support this campaign. 
Um, and, you know, I guess perhaps before we move on to, um, you know, have a chat about the kind of new developments for people that, you know, perhaps not exactly aware of like, um, you know, what, what is the, what is the, um, where's the mine and, you know, what's the kind of thing that's proposed and, um, you know, perhaps we could talk about the Adani group as well. Yeah. So the mine is uh, a large new greenfield thermal coal mine in central Queensland, um, it would be the biggest coal mine in Australia and, in fact, the biggest coal mine in the Southern Hemisphere if it was to be built. Um, the total output from the mine that they that the Adani company are hoping to, to dig up and burn is about 60 million tonnes of coal per annum. Um, so it's a huge amount of coal. And this coal mine is located in the Galilee Basin in central Queensland, which is a thermal coal deposit that... Um, coal companies in Australia have been wanting to dig up for many decades, um, but at the moment there's no coal mining happening there. So if this mine were to go ahead, one of our real concerns is that it would allow a whole slew of companies to come into the Galilee Basin and dig up and burn even more coal. Um, there are at the moment eight other mines proposed for the Galilee Basin, so um, th- those those mines are proposed by companies such as um, Gina Rein- Reinhardt's Hancock Mining, Clive Palmer's Waratah Coal. Uh, there's a whole lot of coal mining companies sniffing around this this coal basin. It's some pretty powerful um, people that I, you know the campaign is up against, and I guess that's why you know it's been really important to get that kind of mainstream support from you know organisations and um, you know I think the Greens uh, party that's gotten behind. Um, the campaign and stuff as well. Um, but we, we saw, I guess, a bit of an expose a little while ago on the Adani family, the Adani group. Um, they, uh, um, you know, I think allegedly have been involved in some pretty kind of corrupt sort of business and things in the past. And um, I guess that's a concern as well, is having a, a group like that involved and, you know, what kind of other deals they might make with the Reinhardts and Palmers of Australia. Yeah, certainly. Um, the Adani company has a really poor corporate track record and poor history of environmental uh, of compliance with environmental laws. Uh, in India, they've had uh, coal ships sink. They've destroyed mangroves, um, which were vital for uh, the local fishing communities near their Mundra coal-fired power station. Uh, and the real concern that we have, again, is that those problems that they've had in India will come here to Australia, where we've got really important cultural and environmental sites in the Galilee Basin, such as the Dungabula Springs, um, which are a gra- groundwater-fed um, mound spring um, that's of in- incredible ecological significance, but also of importance to the local traditional owners um, on the site of Adani's mine. Uh, and then not only that, but Adani would be proposing to um, export their coal through the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area uh, and do so by bringing in 500 ships laden with coal every year. So for a, for a company that's, um, you know, had problems with ships, ships exporting coal in India sinking, uh, to then be proposing to um, bring another 500 ships through our Great Barrier Reef, that's a really serious concern. Um, I, I see that currently the Sea Shepherd is um, sailing its, I think, the Steve Irwin vessel um, across uh, Queensland to protest as part of the um, campaign, I guess, to raise awareness of of this um, of the issue and um, I guess, but you know, as well about what's happening on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, is that something that I think is linked, perhaps, to what there might be some new kind of funding that's come out that ACF were talking about? Yeah, that's right. So last 
last Monday, uh, Karan Adani, who is Gautam Adani's son. Gautam Adani's the um, the head of the Adani corporate group. So Karan Adani gave his first television interview to um, an Indian media agency. And during that interview, he sort of got an offhanded question about what was happening in Australia. And, uh, and his response was that the Carmichael coal mine is fully funded and that Adani only need to find about $1 billion to um, fund their rail line. Now, that may seem like a lot of money, a billion dollars, but for the size, um, for the scale of this project, that is significantly less um, than, than certainly we thought that Adani needed to, to get going. And it really underscores how urgent and significant this threat is. Um, I think there was a real perception for some time that Adani couldn't get financed. The big banks in Australia had ruled out funding it. A whole slew of banks overseas had ruled out funding it. Uh, but now we discover that Adani are actually closer than they've ever been to being able to build this mine. Um, and really that underscores why we need a hard political fix to this mine. We can't just continue, you know, hoping that the that the banks will go away. We can't just keep playing whack-a-mole with different financing uh, opportunities that come up. We actually need our federal politicians to come in uh, and make a commitment to stop this coal mine. You know, uh, we've had state politicians as well kind of dilly-dallying around that particular issue, you know, not saying that they will not back the mine, but saying while the mine is not financially viable, obviously we want, we don't want to be involved. But there's been talk of that figure for some time that the uh, state <clears throat> Queensland government might tip in a billion dollars for this. Re- I mean, this is exactly the, the part of the project that they've threatened. Uh, well, I shouldn't say threatened. They've said that they will fund if the rest of the finance lines up. Are you concerned that that may become a reality? Yeah, well, so last year during the Queensland state election, uh, the federal funding um, that would have gone via the state government to the mine um, from the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility was was a really significant issue during that um, state election. The Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk was um, bird-dogged extensively during media um, interviews that she gave. Stop Adani protesters stood behind her and asked her if she would um, veto the billion-dollar loan from the federal government. She did commit during that election to veto the loan, and that was a really significant um, win for our campaign. Mm-hmm. But certainly the state government uh, is still, um, you know, um, doing deals for Adani. Um, They've given them a free free and unlimited groundwater licence. Adani have really significant um, opportunities to take surface water, 12.5 billion litres of surface Mm. water per year is, is what the estimates are. They've got a secret royalty deal with the state government. The state government won't release the details of that, but we know that it has some sort of concessional terms for Adani. And a couple of months ago, it emerged that the state government was looking at building a $100 million road upgrade for Adani's Adani's coal mine. So there is a lot of public money on the table for this Mm. mine. It may not be through the billion-dollar NAIF loan, um, but the state government has certainly been backing in Adani um, to the tune of several hundred million dollars. That promise of uh, millions of litres, of billions of litres of surface water must be really a politically charged promise in the current climate. I know that water is scarce all along the Murray-Darling Basin. There's, there's major problems with the management of that water flow for farmers, for other industrial users. I mean, that seems uh, very politically risky to be guaranteeing um, a foreign 
such a large foreign company access to what is a scarce resource? Yeah, we know that water um, and concerns about water are really significant issues, particularly in central Queensland where the mine's going to be built. You know, there, there is a lot of unemployment in central Queensland and, and so uh, even though Adani's jobs figures are, you know, much, much less than they claim, um, that is certainly one of the issues that, um, you know, is resonating for people in places like Townsville and Rockhampton. But the other issue that uh, really concerns them is is what Adani's impact will be on places like the Great Artesian Basin. Um, we we know that Adani are going to take you know up to ten billion liters of water per year from that from that basin, uh, and we know that in Central Queensland, where more than half the state is in drought, those sort of issues really bite home, particularly for agriculturalists and farming communities. Mm. Um, and, and so the Premier of Queensland, the Queensland Government, is it's a Labor government, that's right. Um, so, I mean, I guess what, what um, that's, I mean, obviously the, we can't, we're not guaranteed that the Labor is necessarily clearly going to represent interests of, um, you know, perhaps those on the left or, or wanting to protect the environment and things like that. Um, I guess I wonder, you know, that what is the alternative? Is it just... Um, trying to pressure that the Labor government um, and perhaps with a federal election uh, coming up um, probably early next year, uh, you know, is it about, you know, I guess what what can a federal government do to intervene over a state in that in that instance? Mm. And are we going to see any change if, if a Labor government in, in Queensland is already, you know, part of these deals? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think there's two parts to it. So there's firstly a part of what what is the policy lever that the federal government could pull to actually stop this project? And then there's secondly a political question around, well, how do we actually ensure that a new federal government pulls that policy lever? So I'll deal with the first part of it. Uh, there are essentially two key mechanisms that the federal government could use. The first is um, revoking Adani's environmental approvals, federal environmental approvals. So those approvals have been issued under a piece of legislation called the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. It's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but also known as the EPBC Act. Uh, And the Environment Minister is empowered to revoke those approvals if new information about the impacts of the project comes to light. Now, since the Adani mine was approved, we've had um, back-to-back extensive coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, um, and, and that in and of itself could be used to trigger a revocation decision by the Environment Minister. The other tool that the federal government could use is uh, its powers to control exports, and those powers are already used to prohibit the export of things like um, uranium and, and nuclear materials, uh, asbestos, um, wood chips, uh, and these powers were used, in fact, in the 1970s to prohibit sand mining on Fraser Island. So what the federal government could do is prohibit the export of coal from the Galilee Basin. And not only would that put a stop to Adani's mine, but it would also put a stop to the eight other coal mines proposed for that, for that thermal coal basin. Is there the political will in the current federal government for the... Is that something they... Is there any element of the coalition that desires that outcome? Uh, <laughs> the coalition? No, no, unfortunately not. Um, so really, b- because of that reality, because we know that the coalition is so beholden to these um, conservative 
pro-coal interests in their party, uh, we need to absolutely raise the pressure on the Federal Labor Party Mm -hmm. to commit to stop the project. Mm -hmm. Bill Shorten came very close to doing that during the Batman Mm -hmm. by-election, or Cooper, as it's now called, um, when, when, you know, he issued some fairly strong statements about his concern for the project. Uh, What he didn't do was actually commit the Labor Party to do anything about that concern. Mm. And Labor's current position is still that they'll support the mine if it stacks up environmentally and financially. So we need to keep pushing the Labor Party uh, off that fence to actually take a really strong commitment before the next federal election. I see there was a report that came out, um, I think it was about the 19th, 20th of... So that was last week, I think, and... Um, he talked about he's talking about the Queensland government and the federal government um, have conceded that there is bleaching to the coral reef and that you know I guess they're they're conceding that climate change um, has had an impact on the reef and um, that you know they're admitting that there's a problem which everyone else in the world can see I guess um, but I, I you know I guess that's um, some positive step towards them actually seeing that there's something that needs to be done in that area and maybe that can lead to some of the things you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, we know that the um, one of the best ways to protect the Great Barrier Reef from coral bleaching is to stop digging and burning coal and that really needs to start with not opening you know the absolute first step the absolute minimum requirement is that we're not opening new thermal coal mines absolutely we need to be um, ratcheting down our thermal coal exports and our consumption of coal oil and gas here in australia but the absolute first step is not opening new coal mines like adani's um and i guess you know to go back to what we were talking about at the start in, in it being a campaign that has really galvanised people around Australia. And, um, you know, as I said, there's lots of people that, um, that I spoke to who have not been involved in uh, activist sort of politics sort of stuff before, but it is something that, you know, they've gotten involved in. And I think, you know, even from a kind of branding kind of perspective and people wearing T-shirts and um, hats and earrings and all kinds of different things, I think that... Um, you know, while perhaps branding isn't necessarily the way that we often like to talk about things, it it does help to get a message out there to people and to let people know that it's a campaign or a message that you support. Um, you know, like what are the ways that people can um, get involved, uh, I guess, either through ACF or through the Stop Adani group? Sure. Well, we know that the um, mining industry is really powerful because they have a lot of money and because they have a lot of influence. But we are powerful because we have a lot of people behind our campaign. Uh, So there are really two things that um, your listeners could do to help. The first thing is um, donate to ACF. Um, If you go to our website, acf.org.au, there's a a link to donate. We've got 500,000 supporters across Australia and we really rely on their generosity to fund our campaigns. But the second and perhaps most important thing that people can do is is to volunteer on this campaign. Um, As we've been talking about, there is going to be a federal election could be, you know, in a couple of months, depending on what happens in in Braddon and Longman, um, or it could be in May next year, uh, or by May next year. Uh, And so ACF set a really ambitious goal for the next federal election. We're going to talk to one million people across Australia about uh, the three election campaign um, demands that we have, which is to um, convert to 100% renewable by 2030, to stop Adani's coal mine and to end burning and mining coal. 
Uh, and so we know that conversations are the most powerful way of persuading people to vote on the issues that matter to us. Uh, and so the m- most effective thing that your listeners could do is to come to one of our community door knocking events or to one of our community calling uh, calling parties where we'll be making phone calls to some of the key electorates at the next election. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I guess I'd um, ask your listeners to, to, to speak up, to show up, and then to act on on this really important environmental campaign. I think it's really interesting that those two um, parts of campaigning of, you know, calling and face-to-face door knocking has become, um, you know, has really come back in the last kind of few years to be a really key part of campaigning around, um, you know, it's something Trades Hall do with the unions. um, And, you know, Labor Party has been doing uh, as part of, like, marginal seats and things. because, you know, it is, a, I guess, a, a traditional type um, kind of campaigning. It goes beyond uh, social media and um, trying to just advertise online. Um, so, yeah, I think that's it's a really interesting kind of thing that we uh, kind of have all this information and connectivity online, but a lot of groups are going back to trying to meet with people face-to-face or at least on the phone and, and engage people where you can actually have a conversation with that person. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we live increasingly atomized existences these days, and so having those human interactions is perhaps you know more important and more mm. um, compelling than it ever has been. Um, and we know that, as you spoke about, um, how effective branding uh, has been in the Stop Adani campaign. Um, but under, underlying all of that is some really effective organising that's taken place across Australia, uh, and we know that you know from the union movement to the to the um, to winning winning the right to vote for women to ending slavery, the thing that um, wins these really important um, campaigns is talking to people, having conversations, and actually doing that real deep organising. Talking about unexpected human interactions, is there an unexpected ally? And this is going to sound very bizarre, but you know, I've been fascinated by the fact that AGL do not want to open new coal mines. They don't want to, um, you know, support the Liddell coal mine to stay open. You've got business in Australia not wanting to, you know, some Australian businesses not wanting to open new coal mines, not wanting to dig up coal or burn coal, wanting to move to clean renewable energy. And then you've got the federal government who are you know, ideologically, let's let the market decide. But when the market says, we don't want to do coal anymore, and the majority of Australians, according to polling, agree with that, they don't want to burn fossil fuels anymore, is there some kind of relationship that ACF can make with mining companies (laughs) and energy companies? Look, it is a pretty strange time that we live in that, the Fed, as you say, the federal government keeps talking about the need for a technology-neutral policy and meanwhile yeah. is trying to find ways to bankroll coal mines. Uh, I do think it's, you've touched on an interesting point. Um, we know that coal's in structural decline. Uh, you know, the, the, the business in town at the moment is, is renewables. And a great uh, opportunity. You know, it, we're talking about the jobs of tomorrow constantly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so for places like um, central Queensland, where there are a lot of communities that really do rely on coal mining and have relied on coal mining for decades. Here in the Latrobe Valley. And in the Latrobe Valley, that's right. There, there, um, there is a need for 
governments, I think, to look to how, how are we going to transition those communities in a really fair and equitable way away from those um, old, dirty fossil fuels that we simply can't keep burning, um, but do that in a way that will ensure that those people's livelihoods are protected uh, and that, they're, that, that they have employment, secure employment into the future. I think that's a really big challenge for um, federal and state governments, but it's absolutely a conversation that we need to start having. Well, this, um, unfortunately, we're going to have to um, wrap things up here, but this has been a great conversation and um, I, I'm sure that lots of people listening to this will be um, will have learned a lot about the campaign and where things are. I know that I have. And uh, So if people want to get involved, um, as Christian mentioned, you can go to acf.org.au or Stop Adani um, as well. Um, so Christian Slattery is a campaigner with Stop Adani at ACF, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks. Um, and now we're going to go through to... Um, our regular program, um, which is Over the Wall. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. First up on Over the Wall today, we're going to talk about the review of the Residential Tenancies Act for Victoria. Changes recommended as as part of the review of the Residential Tenancies Act were expected to be introduced into Victorian Parliament in 2018. Duncan, you've been covering issues around the Residential Tenancy Act in Victoria in Over the Wall recently. Can you update us on what its likely fate is? Sadly, it seems to be knocked off the agenda for this year and we won't see it brought up until after the state election in November. So it won't go through Parliament this year? Very unlikely. There's only 12 sitting days left in the Parliament and you would expect to see it at least appear on an agenda and then you've got to remember it's got to get through both houses in that uh, 12-day period. We suspect that, as is being reported by some state political reporters, that there's a general strike Uh, happening in the Legislative Council, which is the state upper house, where they've decided that the Liberal Party will not be supporting any Labor Party initiatives that come to them until the election. Not good news for renters that were hoping for the well-needed reforms to improve conditions. Not good at all, because it puts everything in jeopardy, according to what the result is in the state election, but also in terms of whether it becomes an election issue. This is a public So that was uh, one of the state issues that's uh, become prominent. But uh, it'd be interesting, Pete, to look at some of the federal issues that are likely to pop up for the second half of the year and problems that might appear around them. One of them is the cashless welfare card. And this is an ongoing tussle with the coalition trying to get these uh, cards up in areas where there's opposition. Um, I think you may have... A quote from someone you spoke to about this issue? Yeah, Catherine from the Say No 7 campaign convener 
updated this a few weeks ago on Over the Wall about the current situation for expansion of the three trial sites of cashless welfare card going into Parliament, and this is what she had to say. It went through the House of Reps, which we knew it would because we didn't have the numbers to beat it. However, it's gone down to the Senate, and now there's a new Senate inquiry that has been set down. Senate inquiry are accepting submissions until the 20th July, and then it's reporting on the 14th of August. So it's in limbo again, and it's gone to a third Senate inquiry. The problem is that the people who chair them are the LNP. <laughs> Another political issue to be watchful about listeners, and in three weeks we'll be hearing the latest about the outcomes of these reports into proposals of expansion of trial sites for the cashless welfare card. Hi, this is Mitchell from Cut Copy, and you're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio. Subscribe now. The third issue we'll speak about on Over the Wall is the call for an increase for payments for Newstart and even big business groups and, and corporate groups have been getting in part of the lobby saying that we need to increase payments for people on Newstart, but still both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party are sitting on their hands and, and doing nothing about giving any increase for the most needy people in this country. Duncan, what's happening there? What's the latest? This campaign seems to be building Chris Richardson from Access Economics, who's not known as a, a bleeding-heart economist, has been arguing the case for a $50 per week increase to Newstart since the start of the year. And he's got some unusual allies, among them John Howard, the former Prime Minister. If you are watching much current affairs, you'll see it's becoming increasingly talked about and become increasingly a given that there should be an increase to New Start benefit. And the figure of $50 per week would not only bring New Start benefits much closer to the wage price index, but it would also only cost $3 billion a year. So it's quite an inexpensive policy to enact. The total welfare spend in the current fiscal year is around $176 billion. Of that, only $12 billion goes to the New Start class of benefits, and that includes Ausstudy, Abstudy and Sickness Benefit. So that represents less than 7% of the total welfare spend. And if you include, if you start to bundle in Ausstudy and Abstudy and Sickness Benefit, they're probably only less than 1% of the total spend as well. Most people wouldn't realise that, I don't think. I don't think they would. Most people would be shocked to learn that because it's been a, a tried and true ideological statement to say why are we wasting so much money on these people who can't get off their asses to find work. Type of comments that the say people in the Liberal Party or some of the people in, in the media are saying that people on Newstart are lazy, they won't you know get up and, and, and look for work, but... The money isn't enough to pay for affordable housing and the money is not allowing people any chance to find work because they're absolutely impoverished. That's right. And also the coalition can keep pursuing that blockhead ideological argument of dull bludgers and everything else, but they are going to increasingly find themselves arguing against leading economists, leading industry peak bodies, and they're not going to win that fight, obviously. People on Newstart being used as political footballs, like people who are asylum seekers and refugees also being used in that way, particularly coming up to election times. Yeah, they are. And they're both soft targets. 
when you're trying to run an election. Don't forget we've got five elections next week, and I suspect that's why we've been seeing a lot of coalition people coming out in the media talking incessantly about stopping the boats, about uh, work visas. Peter Dutton's been front and centre, but also Anthony Albanese has signed up to the Stop the Boats Pacific solution quite vigorously, perhaps for his own political reasons. I suspect that a lot of this talk is in order to secure the One Nation vote in some of these seats in Braddon, Longman and Mayo, and it may evaporate after the election. So none of this is hard and real policy, it's more political point scoring coming up to elections? Most of it, but there has been a reform recently in terms of people on bridging visas, which is the usual visa you will receive once you're an asylum seeker that's allowed into the country. The benefit that you get from the government is being reformed, but we'll be endeavouring over the next few months to try and get our head around that and report it back to the listeners. I sing the words I will not say so. Hey, this is Greta Ray, and you are listening to 3CR 855am Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. So there's some of the issues we're looking at over the next few months. As well as that, I intend to uh, speak to someone from Hospo Voice, one of Australia's newest unions, about some of the programs they're running. It's a union for hospitality workers? Correct. I'll also be looking for some updates on the rollout of online medical records and any problems we might be having with that. What sort of issues will you be covering, Pete? Yeah, we're starting to organise another interview with the Not My Debt campaign around robo-debt and also some updates on campaigns for difficulties around the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Right, we've got our work cut out for us. We better get on to it. Let's start climbing that wall. <laughs> and finally, listeners, please come and remember and discover previously rare or unpublished works by our sister in poetry and also one of the most important people in 3CR's history, Lisa Belair, the late Lisa Belair. There's going to be a launch of her new poetry book, Aboriginal Country, and it's on tomorrow night in Fitzroy with Gary Foley speaking and reading several poems at the Brothers Public House at 42 Johnson Street in Fitzroy starting at 7.30pm. A book by Lisa Belair will all be there.
indigenous people in Australia in the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. You are tuned into 3CR Monday Breakfast, 855am on your radio dial. Now, we're very lucky in just a moment to be joined over the phone by Maria Pallotta Chiaroli, who's a senior lecturer in the School of Health and Social Development at Deakin University, as well as a founding member of the Australian LGBTIQ Multicultural Council. And she's going to join us because last week, Matthew Guy, the leader of the opposition, promised to remove the Safe Schools program from Victorian schools. He actually uh, made that promise back in January, but he reiterated it just last week and said he would replace it with an anti-bullying campaign that focuses mainly on cyberbullying. Interestingly, this uh, this uh, replacement um, program uh, is already available to Victorian students. It's called the eSafety program. Um, so the um, Herald Sun report of $15.3 million extra dollars for schools is a little incorrect considering it's already available under the Andrews government. But new aspects of this coalition plan could also see more students more easily expelled uh, from school for bullying. So that's a, an issue as well. But we've got Maria Pallotta Chiaroli uh, on the phone now to talk to us about what the removal of the Safe Schools program could mean. Thanks for joining us, Maria. Hi, Jackson. Thank you. So, Maria, what do you think uh, the impact will be of removing the Safe Schools program from Victoria from the Victorian curriculum? I think it's going to um, go back to what some of us have been fighting for about over 20 years now, and that is we need to name the different types of bullying. It's okay to say anti-bullying programs, but a lot of the research that many of us have done, including um, Dr Wayne Martino and myself, is that we need to name homophobic, transphobic, biphobic bullying. But it also goes beyond that. It's not just about the negativities of bullying. It's about the affirmation and celebration of gender diversity and sexual diversity that young people, children need and want. So going back to a bully anti-bullying program, sure, that's just one facet, but we do know research shows we need to talk about it or else um, sexual, sex and, sexual and gender diversity um, kind of get erased or are easier to erase um, through some schools and leaders, school leaders. Yeah, one point you made uh, in an article published through uh, Deakin University is that homophobic and transphobic language is already well known amongst young people that there isn't um, you know some of the hysteria around the safe schools program is that it's introducing ideas around gender fluidity sexuality uh, and such Mm. issues too young Um, but but you're saying that these are things that children are already aware of and already use uh, violent language uh, without being introduced to it through the safe schools program 
Absolutely. And I think what the Andrews government has done, I mean, you know, the, all the movements in the state, even with us with the AGMC and the work around multi-faith, multicultural communities, is about addressing realities um, addressing the problematics of realities, but also affirming what's there. And I think sometimes we do get some adults who believe that children, um, they're using what we call the discourse of innocence. Mm. And a long time ago, Janice Irvin dispelled that, that, you know, if you, const- if you, const- you make students, um, well, if you treat students like they're innocent, you treat children like they're innocent, you're actually leaving them wide open to bullying. You're actually leaving them wide open to very negative messages. So if they don't learn that the word gay is a really great word and a cool word that people want to use for themselves, some people want to use for themselves, it becomes the offensive word, the put-down word. Mm. So all we're doing, and also we've got the internet, you know, if if and if uh, Matthew Guy's talking about um, cyberbullying, well, he's actually saying the reality is that on the internet, you could uh, children can actually cut out the middle person. They mm. can go straight to a whole lot of information and a whole lot of stuff which may be problematic. So if the school wants to have a voice in this, then they're going to have to have a realistic voice and step up to the knowledge that young people and children are already having in their families, in the media, in the world around them. Um, And it could be fantastic knowledge, but for some students coming into our schools, it is still incredibly repressed or negative, and we need to address that. So I don't think, you know, and, and a lot of these movements, Jackson, we're finding are being driven by students and a lot of movements mm. that quality, sexuality and gender education are being driven by those students and some really out there families and parents of, of a range of genders and sexualities themselves. Mm. I'm Maria, it's James here. I'm actually a student at Deakin and one of the subjects I had last year was a gender studies subject. And I yep. couldn't help but think um, while doing that, that I wish that, uh, you know, during high school or um, all throughout, you know, the earlier kind of years of school that we had subjects like this. And, you know, um, yeah. unfortunately, you know, I think particularly the a lot of the religious schools as well are taught not only um, not, you know, something in the, the mould of what you might get from a gender studies class at university, but in a lot of ways the complete opposite of that. And, you know, I think... It, while it's not the only solution, I think that it it does it would help to really um, you know shape particularly young boys to be able to have you know a very different attitude to sex and sexuality and things like that. Oh, Cynthia, absolutely, and and thanks for giving a heads up to the gender studies. I know that the gender and sexuality studies network at Deakin has worked very hard to get everything back, you know, to get these things into the curriculum. But look, you know, part of being a health worker is we talk about harm minimisation rather than crisis management, and that's exactly what you're saying. You know, if we did this work in early childhood and we did this work with um, um, in early adolescence, we would actually prevent and hopefully minimise the amount of bullying, the amount of suicidality, the mental health issues that come later. And you've also raised a really important point about diversity of religions. Now, in in our AGMC, for example, we work with a whole range of Muslim, Jewish, Christian, a whole lot of people for who who identify as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, um, genderqueer, pansexual, demisexual, 
but they also say they want to belong to their faith mm. and they believe that their faith have to step up to do <laughs> what they actually say they do, which is a duty of care, love everyone, you know, the, those beautiful words that should actually be applied. So I don't think schools and I don't think Matthew Guy's attitudes and um, perspectives actually have a link to what is already a fantastic movement forward is we're getting a lot of schools and a lot of religions a lot of cultures um, some of them have been on board anyway some of them are coming on board in those you know individual schools so yeah it's you know, we, if we want to get right down to the basics, it's really about children's health, young people's health, family's health, and, and a healthy community. And this kind of retrograde... Mo I mean, I'm, I'm into a lot of retro stuff, but not this. <laughs> this kind of retrograde stuff is actually going to push back and put back um, things that some of us have been working on for over, you know, over 30 years now. It's really interesting what you mentioned there, Maria, about the intersectionality of culture, faith and sexuality. Some of the rhetoric employed by Matthew Guy and conservative commentators around the Safe Schools program is a bit akin to the rhetoric used by the right in combating the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, with the, yes. well, the, the knuckle-draggers in America are saying all lives matter and missing the point of that campaign. Here it seems mm. Matthew Guy is saying... All people should be protected from bullying, even if they are not queer or non-binary or any other, um, you know, um, uh, identifying. Um, as though the Safe Schools program fails some kids in its focus on one very broad and diverse group. And I'm sure through your work with the Multicultural Council for Gay and Lesbian, Bisexual, Trans Youth and, and adults as well, you must... Uh, can, can you respond to that? Does the Safe Schools program ignore children who do not identify as queer? No, absolutely not. It is a Safe Schools program. It is about everybody's heterosexual... Um, sorry, everybody's sexuality, mm. including heterosexual. It's about everybody's gender being affirmed, mm. um, information um, to have healthy relationships, to, ha to have a healthy sexuality, mm. to do a healthy gender. Um, I don't think so, and I'm, I've... Uh, in 2005, I spoke about what schools often used to use then, and I thought by now we'd be over it, which is the ethnic excuse. You know, oh, the multicultural families in our school won't be able to handle mm -hmm. this, or the religious. But, you know, you can actually turn that on its head. I, we wrote back then a whole lot of simple statements and simple ways that schools can address those negativities. Um, as with the marriage equality movement, there is um, an, in, an, an interesting kind of um, causation thing. Oh, it's those ethnics or it's those religious people, those Muslims who are stopping all this good work. Um, there are, of course, people in every religion, every faith, in every culture who are doing that kind of prevent, wanting to stop this. But there is some amazing work going on, and I think that is actually an excuse. And in the marriage equality, we actually found that only the negativity of what was happening in some cultural communities was put forward by the mainstream media. The positive actions, the incredible work that was going on in the communities by those of us in those communities was actually overlooked. We had a, if you don't mind me saying, Jackson, and it's relevant to this argument, we had um, in front of Parliament here in Melbourne, mm -hmm. we held a protest with the leader of the National Federation of Ethnic Communities, with Minister Robin Scott, who's the Multicultural Affairs and Social Cohesion Minister, mm -hmm. We had a whole range of diverse cultural and faith communities standing up and saying we want 
marriage equality. We want safety in education and schools and, and, and affirmation of um, genders and sexualities. Mm. And only SBS picked it up. <laughs> no other newspaper, as far as we know, no mainstream news service bothered to come up come and film it. Mm. But anything that a multicultural or multi-faith community does that is seen to present what Matthew Guy's crew wants to present, suddenly that's lambasted all over the media. So thanks to you for doing this kind of work because we need those voices out there. Um, and that's a, that's a deliberate um, playing into racism, playing yeah. into certain stereotypic representations. We've just published the LGBTI Muslim report here in Victoria. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so well, I know, perhaps... so we're really wrapped. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does always interest me when um, conservative politicians use politically correct as a pejorative, when really it's talking about like people from all different communities want uh, all people to have healthy, respectful relationships, to have good relationships yes. with their identified gender, with their sexuality. You know, I don't understand, you know, when he, when, when Guy said that he would scrap this program at the start of the year, he said it was a politically correct gender and sexuality agenda. Yeah. And really, to me, I think politically correct speaks to something that reaches across political lines and is a consensus. And in some ways, Guy's, you know, uh, confectioned moral panic and paranoia we see around safe schools surely reveals a latent homophobia and transphobia in the community. You know, yes, that people are so frightened of these ideas around gender fluidity and the erasure of this binary system, which could actually be really liberating for young uh, men and women to move beyond. I know oh, that absolutely. you wrote a book uh, some years ago, So What's a Boy? Addressing Issues of Masculinity and Schooling. And we've been talking a lot on Monday Breakfast about uh, men's violence and the creation of masculinity here in Australia. Um, what what can the safe well what what has the safe schools program been doing to undo some of the rigid restrictions of gender roles in Australia? Yeah, um, from very factual information around um, sex and sexualities and genders, from very bio biological info, which we all need, but rather than calling it, you know, that hetero-reproductive stuff and calling that sexual health, it's actually looking at a range of um, information for young people and then it's providing some great opportunities for debate and discussion, dialogue within the classroom, within oneself, um, for in, you know, age-appropriate, whatever that means, but in other words, you know, you're not going to suddenly lambast children, young kids with a whole lot of biomedical stuff that they won't handle. But it goes right back to the basics which we've always taught. You know, it talks about relationships, it talks about consent, it talks about um, valuing people's, you know, what's non-consensual, what's consensual, what's positive, what's problematic, what to do if in your particular situations. Um, you know, what does it mean to be gender fluid? What does it mean to be non-binary? Providing people with great information and a great ways, I guess a set of ways of looking at things. Now, for me as a social deconstructionist, I get really funny when people start talking about political correct movements and someone's agenda because, you know, those words have been used to justify some of the most abusive, mm. and I heard before I went on, you're talking about colonialism and indigenous material communities, and, you know, those things have been used to put down, repress, or justify, also justify inaction and um, abuse. So I think we need to um, definitely around masculinities. And again, our research keeps showing that the predominant hom homophobia, biphobia, transphobia is coming from 
um, heteronormative, what we call heteronormative boys, mm -hmm. who think that in order to up themselves as men, as mm -hmm. masculine, they need to put down anyone who they consider as not masculine. So being a girl, being being gay, often get colluded. So anything that looks supposedly feminine, and this is really important then for misogyny. I think mm. uh, Matthew Guy's line is really missing the point that a lot of the safe school stuff will also be about misogyny, mm. um, sexual harassment between um, cisgendered male and female, between boys and girls. So I think, you know, in frightening people who don't have access to more information and a broader view um, in making and pulling it down to one or two things that they know will spark a moral panic or hysteria social hysteria um, is actually it's actually very offensive and actually it's actually very dangerous because we've we already know the results of that Jackson and mm. Cynthia you know that's the dilemma when when you've been doing this work for a long time as so many people at Archers have um, nationally and internationally, we know the dangers of going back to something like that and we need to keep going forward. I think Safe Schools and the work that Ros Ward and Liam, all those people, Liam Leonard, have done is, is, is fantastic. It's, it's incredible and we need to keep going because if even if the schools don't keep going, the reality is that society will. And I might sound like I'm, <laughs> I'm very optimistic, but I just look at the, sh the social shifts in the media. As you said, Cynthia, from the time you're at school to what we're studying now at uni, those shifts are going to keep going. It's about where the schools and um, educational leaders want to have a say. If mm. they don't want to have a, a proper say... Um, Two, I think, terrible things might happen. First of all, yes, the um, the suicidality, the mental health, the bullying, mm. the negatives of not addressing sexual and gender diversity will be high, if not escalate. And secondly, it's going to happen anyway. Young people are going to have access to a shifting culture, a shifting mm. community, shifting media, um, within their own families, these discussions are going on. There are four three-year-olds who now are loving to not use the words gay, lesbian, they're using them positively. It's their parents. Mm. It's their community. Mm. Um, so it's either they step up and have a, an effective word, word, schools have an effective place in this um, conversation, mm. or um, they are going to, what young people keep telling us more and more in our research, they always did. And for a while, you know, this had shifted. We, would, we began to think that, you know, some sorry, young people were saying to us, you know what, schools are starting to actually engage. Schools are actually starting to be meaningful in these discussions. Mm. We may go back to a point where young people just scoff and laugh at the sex ed again that will be given. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to recognise too, is it also, it's also about the schools being properly resourced and the teachers and educators themselves being educated on those issues and that's what the Safe Schools program provides. And I think, yes. you know, to speak broadly about, you know, confected moral panic, I think we need to enrol some of our political and uh, institutional leaders into such courses so that they too could see the possible freedom involved in deconstructing such rigid uh, gender roles. I, oh, absolutely. I would love that. Um, I think one of the dilemmas is that um, some of these leaders and I'm casting aspersions here, but I think some of these adults have come through 
childhoods and have come through lives where their own repressions, mm. their own insecurities, and also it's a political game, football, it's a political game to play a particular line when they know in their own realities. You know, as Tony Abbott had to deal with his sister, for example, you know, this is stuff that's going on in private lives and social lives, mm. but a political line will not necessarily align with what's happening in our society. I just Before uh, we let you go, and thank you very much, I just want to draw your attention to one final piece of uh, paradox or cog cognitive dissonance in Guy's announcement. You know, he says that he wants to remove safe schools to open up an anti-bullying uh, program for students who don't identify on the LGBTQI plus spectrum and to focus instead on those who may be othered through a physical or ethnic or intellectual difference and bullied for that. But at the same time, he seeks a greater representation of Western-centric teachings and increased <laughs> European and American yes. imperial history from 1700 onwards. Wouldn't that type of focus actually alienate further anyone of difference, as we have seen uh, capitalism do over centuries? Oh, Jackson, you don't need me to do it to answer that one. You've given that so beautifully. Um, absolutely. I think, you know, if we, we come back to basics in the school, we do have anti-racism policies. We have got... Um, all those kinds of strategies in place. We are trying to continually improve and develop them as our communities shift and we have an increasing, say, diverse African communities coming in, for example. We're, we're doing, you know, we are trying to do some great work there and we need to. Um, I think one of the issues that you've pointed out really clearly is this issue of privilege and power and that those people who have been in positions of privilege and power because of their faith or their culture or their colour of their skin or their sexuality are, fine, are really struggling to give that up. And they realise in giving that up, it's, about, it's going to be more about equity and sharing. Um, I am a heterosexual ally. Many heterosexual allies have not felt heterosexual cisgendered allies. We have not felt these programs are actually targeting us negatively. Mm. Many of us feel like we, you know, we, when I talk to straight kids in schools, they tell me that these programs are fantastic for them. Mm. But it also, look, everything should be a mirror and a window, which goes back to bisexual activist feminist BJ Epstein, who talks about the mirror you want fantastic information, knowledge and dialogue that gives you a mirror to really look at yourself but you also want programs in schools and you want material that gives you a window into other people's lives so that you can think and reflect on the way you behave and work with and with other people. I think also this issue, if I could just say you're the, the, construct, the construct of Western centrism, mm. something that we're also trying to do in schools and is really working with a lot of our multicultural, multi-faith communities, is saying, look, you know, this is not a Western thing. Being gay is not a Western thing. Mm. In every culture, in every faith throughout history, there has been gender and sexual diversity and sometimes way more beautifully than is being done under a Christian colonialism. Mm. Um, the genocide of two-spirited people happened when the Portuguese and the Italians, and I own that, that's my ancestry as an Italian person, mm. and the Dutch and the Spanish, when those people went into certain areas and certain lands and destroyed and killed those people who were gender diverse and were mm. often seen as the leaders of their communities. Mm. Um, the homophobia, a lot of Indigenous people say, such as out black, um, the, the homophobia came in with colonialism, mm. Christian missionaries. So we are 
developing more. We're going actually. That's one thing we are, we do like going back to. We're going back to explore and study mm. um, the way many without pedestaling and without not problematizing, mm. but every culture had. Um, sexual and gender diversity within those cultures. We just have to look at Hindu art, for example, which mm. was destroyed. The Takatapui of the Māori people, which the, the British um, destroyed or put in their museums. Um, all those those things. You know, we've got the most beautiful Islamic poets mm. of the 14th century, such as Rumi and Abu Awaz, who was writing love poetry to his male partner mm. and was also being... Uh, writing bisexual, what we today would define as bisexual love poetry and, and erotic poetry. I have to so, say, Maria, damn those prudish Brits. I mean, taking away <laughs> all of this beautiful art and activity. Oh, look. Um, you know, polyamory was part of Māori um, traditional communities, mm. you know, and then the British came in and looked at these beautiful carvings and saw that there was a man with two women, oh. as far as we know, cisgendered, and they split the, the wooden carvings in half and, you know, got rid of the... The, the the extra bloke in that one. <laughs> it is you're right, Jackson. It's been a very offensive, mm. and so this idea of Western centrism is actually going to shut down a lot of research, a lot of beautiful work that is being done in in our schools, not mm. only in sex ed but in history, in literature, in art, and we need to keep going. Well. Thank you. There's a, there's a lot more there. I'd love to speak again, but thank you so much, uh, Maria Pilota Chiaroli, for so joining welcome. us this morning. Um, and have a really nice week. Thank you. And there will be a great conference and all this, if I don't mind doing a little. No. If you don't mind me doing a little plug. No, I think the, that's um, good. You, you have your nat- your national conference coming up for the AGMC. Yeah, the Australian. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got people like SBS Michael Abid. We've got um, Patrick Abud, Benjamin Law. We've got um, Mama, Mama Alto. Yeah, Paul Katsis. Yeah, we've got yeah Paul Katsis. So we've got a whole range of beautiful people and a lot of activists and people coming forward. We're launching our book with. All these wonderful narratives of people who come from diverse cultures and genders and sexualities and faiths. Um, so, and so come to join us. September yeah. 21st to 23rd, St Kilda Town Hall. Yes, yeah, St Kilda Town Hall, the 21st to 23rd of September. You've also got an amazing installation art piece, Nebula. Yes. Uh, it's a part of the oh, uh, exhibition. Wonderful. So, yeah, bring along young people, older people. Oh, yes. All, Absolutely. All ages event. It runs for a yep. couple of days. So that's the... Um... And Sunday... Oh, sorry, Jax, I'm no. interrupting you. I get so excited about no, this. We're working very hard, the crew. <laughs> um, on Sunday, we actually have a youth day. So the day will be for young people to come in, learn, connect, have a, have laughs, just really um, just be and do themselves in a very positive, happy way. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, so that's the Australian gay, lesbian, bi, intersex, trans, uh, the Multicultural Council's National Conference and Book Launch, which uh, the book is Living and Loving in Diversity, I believe. And, yes, uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the conference is on once again from the 21st to the 23rd of September at St Kilda Town Hall. I'm sure if you just type in... AGMC National Conference into your web browser yep. uh, or visit conference.agmc.org.au. You'll be able to find some more information. Thanks so much again, Maria. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome, Jackson. Thanks, Cynthia. Bye. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. 
They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. That's right, this is Brother West from the American Empire trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to 3CR because 3CR is a force for good. It's telling the truth and allows you both to laugh, not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand radio station it is. And welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And I hope everyone has enjoyed the show we've had today. We've just um, got a short period of time uh, left before we wrap things up. Um, But... Um, yeah, I guess we, we, Jackson and I kind of decided to, uh, scale back the amount of interviews that we had mostly, um, you know, perhaps we'll still have some weeks where we, uh, you know, have some more things crammed in and that, that, that's fine. But, uh, to kind of give the, give the interviews themselves a bit more space to, um, have a bit more to cover and, um, you know, just, I guess, let them breathe and have a few other kind of segments thrown in there here and there where people can hopefully hear our voices if that's something they enjoy. Mm, hopefully they enjoy our uh, musings on certain topics. Uh, I just wanted to briefly mention there's a bunch of reports out uh, yesterday and the last few days about Julian Assange possibly being evicted from the Ecuadorian embassy and into um, British authorities' hands, I suppose. So it'll be really interesting to see if that does go ahead. It's, it's Ecuador that are saying they're, they're having meetings with the British government. This is what's been leaked. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens uh, because my understanding is the charges that were uh, overhanging Julian in Sweden have been dropped, I think, by the Swedish prosecutors. So whether he will just be immediately extradited to the US... Um, or held in Britain, uh, it really is a shame that, it, to my mind, that the Australian government hasn't stepped in uh, in the way that they did to help Brian Lake trapped in jail in, in Japan after a wild drunken brawl, you know, mm. priorities from the federal government as normal. Perhaps if Julian was a South African farmer, we might be able to do something for him. Or a footballer. Or a footballer, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I think that um, is certainly something to monitor because... It um, is a ever-evolving, kind of changing um, uh, situation there, I think. Um, but right now, we need to um, vacate the studio and move on to uh, Women on the Line. <laughs> 